Herb Alpert, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Study, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Study, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance on the program. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does on every edition of the program, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Love particular note, Bryce Harper. On a scale of zero to Mike Trout, where is Bryce Harper located? And if he occupies a place higher than previously, what is it that Harper has done to improve his stature relative to Mike Trout and every other player in baseball? Byron Buxton is a celebrated prospect for the Minnesota Twins. He's also a player who has struck out in nearly 50% of his plate appearances. Is there anything we can learn about when or when not to promote a prospect from Buxton's current difficulties? Cameron addresses all that. Another thing Cameron does is to employ a food metaphor. We're discussing Jeremy Hazelbaker and the St. Louis Cardinals' mysterious penchant for transforming French prospects into useful major leaguers. They're turning lemons into lemonade. That food metaphor to come in this edition of Fangraphs Audio. But first a word, or in fact... A number of words from our sponsor. Our sponsor is SeatGeek. Hey, you. You have been frustrated trying to buy tickets online. After finding a quality ticket at a quality price, you proceed to the checkout area and find that a number of fees have been attached. Well, if that's the case, you have not been using SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is to remove not only all of the work, but all of the hassle out of buying tickets. Are you curious about how they do it? One means by which they do it is to pull all the tickets from other sites into one area to aggregate them, as it were, so that one is not compelled to look far and wide for quality tickets, but to find them all merely at one place. SeatGeek offers a feature, too, where they will allow you to set an alert for upcoming games or events, and they will notify you if ticket prices fall. Of some interest to you because you are a nerd, what SeatGeek does is to assign a grade, given the value of a ticket, relative to its quality, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And by means of 21st century technology, it's also possible to see the view from the seat in which you will be sitting at the relevant event. And I don't know if this is the best feature regarding SeatGeek, but that's what it says in this ad copy that I'm reading. SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. And unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the start through to the finish. It never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. And merely for tolerating this much of the introduction, you as a listener are entitled to a $20 rebate from SeatGeek. And here is how you find it. First, what you do is to download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your nearest leisure, which concludes the end of the sponsor's message, that bit, and launches us closer towards an edifying conversation with Managing Editor Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature that same Managing Editor Dave Cameron? And when does it begin? Right now. multiple travels some travels i uh, saw the world <laughs> at least canada and oregon i recently came across someone's name who a person who is from winston-salem but it uh, i do not remember anymore so therefore chris paul is that right yeah, he's from winston-salem he went to wake forest he did and he went to uh west forsyth high school which is the county that i live in it's like his high school is 10 minutes from my house 
Yeah. He, he comes back every year and like puts on clinics and uh, crushes people with the lie. Does he? Uh, does that is that typically a strong basketball school or is that is he sort of an exception? Uh, I think it's a strong basketball school for this area, but uh, we're not like churning out the best players in the world on a regular basis. Although I do think like uh, uh, I think Henry Giles might be the guy's name. He's uh, from High Point, which is actually where Will Myers is from. Oh yeah. Um, he's was maybe the best recruit in the country this year, and so he was from the area, a little further away. But uh, there's definitely some some athletes around here. Yeah. The uh, I no. Well, you know who was. Uh, about whom I was reading for no reason whatsoever was Sebastian Telfair. Do you remember him? Oh yes, Seabass, uh, right? What they called him. Maybe they did, but anyways, he's because he was, uh, well, he was drafted out of high school. Yeah. And uh, he, he was, was a playground legend, right? Yeah, I think he was, and I th- he had a good handle, but he was he was not very big, and he did not really have much in the way of sh- shooting skills. So right. those two things together. are I don't know. It's hard to survive the NBA, I would think, without either of those tools. Yeah, and all the would. all the people who've turned in for baseball are already like, screw this, another podcast with no baseball. No, but well, there is going to be baseball. Let's start. We're, we're going to talk baseball, people. Come back. You went to one of the places. You went to Toronto as one of the places you visited, and you participated it, in the Pitch Talks. Yeah, it was a good time. Uh, pitch Talks is uh, Toronto-based but expanding uh, kind of like Q&A slash speaker series. Um, giving people a chance to come hang out and talk baseball for a few hours. It was now, a good time. I will say, though, know, you posted, I think maybe last week, that you announced that it would be appearing. There would be an event held at the Wilbur, which is a beautiful little theater in Boston, uh, July 7th. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So I actually watched the promotional video. Ah, what did you think? I actually, I was, I'm actually like impressed. It looks like it, it looks like it's a fun event. It is a fun event. Yeah. I think the inclusion of alcohol. Um, makes it a little less serious than you might expect. Like if you've ever been to one of these like baseball nerd conferences or something, like sometimes these like panel discussions can get a little boring, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word. Uh, but when you get like 600 drunk people in a rock venue or music venue or something, and then you like tell the people on stage that they get to drink, uh, it gets a little more lively. Yes, I I agree on all of the accounts you've just mentioned. It did, and it did appear to be there was a um. It was a bit more of a of a casual yeah, um, for sure. event than than with some we've seen. Although you said that uh, given that particular, uh, I think po- pun intended, cocktail of ingredients, that uh, what happened? Did someone from Toronto say he's going to trade someone? That was Gord Ash, the uh, kind of an executive with the Brewers, who uh, used to be the GM of the Blue Jays and now I think still lives in Toronto, so that's why he was at this event uh, telling Blue Jays stories. But he works for the Brewers now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Jonah Carey was moderating the panel with uh, Gord Ash and Buck Martinez and Dan Schulman, who are broadcasters of the Blue Jays. And uh, I think Jonah made some kind of comment about, uh, you know, let's make some trades or let's just do a trade here on stage or something like that and made like a, an offhand um, reference to – Maybe the the Brewers could uh, use like a, a second baseman who could field, and the Blue Jays have an excess second baseman with Devin Travis coming back and Ryan Goins being an exceptional defender. And so Jonah made some comment about uh, let's just trade Ryan Goins for Ryan Braun straight up, and everyone laughed. And then Gordash was like, "We would totally do that trade." <laughs> <laughs> and then he went on to clarify like. We're really in the business of salary relief right now, and so basically intimating that like they would give Ryan Braun to anyone who wanted him. Oh, yeah. Do you think they would do that? I mean, he said it, so 
Uh, um, I he's the authority on the matter. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, I don't think Gordash has the ability to make trades <laughs> anymore. Right. But I think if the Blue Jays called and said, hey, look, you know, here's Ryan Goins, who's probably a, you know, one to two win second baseman, not a great player, but a very good defender, um, and maybe something like an average major league player who's making the league minimum, uh, and when the Blue Jays would take Ryan Braun as a hundred some odd million dollars left on his contract, uh, I think the Brewers would make that trade probably pretty quickly. Is Scooter Jeanette not that great of a fielder? He's not a great fielder. Yeah, mm-hmm. they could easily move him to third base where they're playing the Carps, the Corps, Corps, Aaron Hill. Hill. Yeah, mm-hmm. Aaron, Aaron Hill's remains are uh, could easily be displaced. A former Blue Jay himself. Yeah, that's true. Not that it's much important to this particular conversation. Aaron Hill used to be really good defensively, like ten years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> the. Uh... All right. Well, that's interesting. That's fun to be around. Now, let, let me ask you that question. This is not a question I plan to ask you. But there must be certain deals. Obviously, um, you know, uh, front office types are typically quite conservative with the sort of things they'll actually admit to in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there must be certain deals. Um, there must be certain deals that they can they can freely admit that they would make if if given an offer. Like you would trade. I'm sure the Brewers, for example, to take, you know, to take a, a case where you have a, a highly paid, still productive but not excellent uh, outfielder in Ryan Braun, you would trade him for Bryce Harper, right? Yeah. I'm sure I mean, David Stearns, right, would say, yes, we would trade him for Bryce Harper. So, like, one of the funny things is, like, there's, there actually are tampering rules in Major League Baseball. You're not allowed to talk about other teams' players. But I think uh, on stuff like that, no one really cares. Right? Like, if right. you're not, like, actively interfering with, uh, you know, something that might happen, people are just like, yeah, of course. You would trade Matt Garza for Mike Trout. Yes. Yes, you would. Right. And you could say that. There must be some line. Like, where is it? I mean, it, and you've written about Bryce Harper Day, so this is particularly appropriate. But Bryce Harper is, like, a, is very clearly a generous – I think I can use that – yeah. In earnest this time, right? Generational talent. That's accurate. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're allowed to. You're, you are allowed to say that you would make trades for generational talents. I, I believe so. I think if uh, you know, like I believe maybe it might have been a Yankees executive last year might have gotten in some trouble for make, making comments about how like Bryce Harper would look good in Yankee Stadium in a few years because Harper will be a free agent. Yeah. And there's widely reported that like. Harper wouldn't mind playing for the Yankees. Um, so I think those kinds of comments are off limits. But if you're just like joking around, being like, yeah, we would trade our utility infielder for this like future Hall of Famer, of course we would. Uh, no one cares. Right. Yeah. Well, and the thing you brought up with regard to the Yankees situation, right, is like he said he would look good in a few years. Like that's actually a deal that, that, you know, there's like a 50 per, well, not 50 percent, but there's a yeah, legitimate a, chance that could happen. A real chance that Bryce Harper could end up signing with the Yankees. Right. Because the Yankees have more money than most people. And that's probably the amount of money that Bryce Harper will want. Yeah, more money than most people. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be his actual opening salvo. Just give me more money than most people. <laughs> than most people. Than most people. Yeah. And he will have. I mean, I guess by most baseball players, especially those who've made it to free agency, they have more money than most people. Yeah, for sure. Especially I, if you're opening up to the you, world. Like, if, you, if you spend a year in the big leagues. You have more money than most people. More money than most people. Well, that's what, that's $500,000. Five fifty. Yeah, I mean, like, taxes and agent fees and stuff, like, knocks that down. So, like, but, like, if you spend a full year in the big leagues, you should end the year with, you know, six figures in your bank account, even after living expenses. Unless you just, like, go buy UNSS Bidis's cars or something. Hey, here's a barely relevant question. What is, what is the deduction one can make on federal taxes that, uh, regarding housing? Uh, it's pretty large. You is it really? 
Oh, yeah. So I guess you're, since you're to soon be a homeowner, you basically yeah. get to uh, deduct all of the interest you pay on the mortgage. So like not the principal, not the taxes, although there is an extra, an extra uh, property tax deduction as well. But like uh, all of the interest that you pay on your mortgage, you yeah. get to deduct that from your taxes. That's great. It's pretty handy, yeah. Yeah, I would. The government is like highly encouraging people to buy homes, which is potentially not a great use of the government's money, but that's probably another. Yes, they do. There do seem to be a lot of incentives. Yeah, no, they there are significant financial benefits, uh, tax tax wise, for buying a home. Yeah, but beyond the fact, but the one there's also the one drawback, which is that it's terrifying. Yeah, it's uh, the chance that your roof could like fall in and cost you $20,000 on any given day. That's a little scary. Where do players live? Where do baseball uh, players tend to live? Um, in warm weather climates. Okay. And yeah, the south. What baseball players like actually do you think buy property in the like, you know, within the city of which they play? Like I like I there's a if you watch on mlb.tv through the computer um, there is like these advertisements that come up in between, and it's John Smoltz and it's Jose Altuve right. uh, discussing the properties that they bought in the in the cities where they yeah. played. Yeah. Um, but of course, Smoltz was like a you know a legend in Atlanta. Jose right. Altuve yeah. signed a, an extension with Houston. Yeah. So I assume that so I'm going to assume that while some players buy property, not all of them do. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, it's actually advantageous to buy property outside of the city in which you play. Uh, because, uh, like, so say you play in California, right? Like, you're Clayton Kershaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the marginal tax rate in California is the highest in the country. I mean, like, for a, for a player making what they're making, I think it's like, uh, almost 50% is the, the highest tax bracket they're in. So that, like, a large chunk of their money gets, goes to the government if they mm-hmm. live in California. But they could buy, in a, uh, a place that does not have state income tax, about, they'll still have to pay federal. But you can essentially get away with, uh, you know, a significant tax savings if you live in a state like Arizona, which I believe does not have or has a very small state income tax or a low, lower rate at least, uh, which was one of the calculations when Zach Greinke went from the Dodgers to the Diamondbacks. He probably knew that he was getting a pretty significant tax savings in making that move. Do you think that there is, so sometimes objectively, right, you'll see reports of, Quality of life, right? Yeah. And these are sort of um, essentially surveys that the residents of a, of a city or a state will complete themselves. Yeah. Do you think that – so I would assume that there are parts, especially if you're a wealthy person, mm-hmm. there are areas of California, Los Angeles, in which it's great It's great to live there. Mm. Have you been to Los Angeles? Yeah. I. Well, yes, I have. I've been to a couple different parts of Los Angeles, and some of them are quite beautiful. Okay. I don't, uh, my perspective, Los Angeles is not somewhere I would want to live. No, I'm telling you, I would not want to live there either, especially because. It's terrible. Yeah. Sorry, Los Angeles podcast listeners. Your city sucks. My, my biggest complaint is that it's, it's full of people from California. (laughs) Right, yeah. If you could get rid of all of the people and the, uh, the traffic and the the traffic is the problem. There, but there's no, listen, there's no denying the fact that Property values are high, and typically property values, aren't they an expression of demand typically? Yes, correct. So a lot of people want to live in L.A. So so there must be – now, are people rational actors always? Not always. I would say rarely. Well, I don't know about rarely. But, yeah, there's certainly – I mean, I think – you know, if your family is from there, they potentially be like, yeah, this is just where I grew up. This is home, right? So, like, you might say, I realize that I could have a – better quality of life from a uh, surroundings environmental cost 
perspective somewhere else, but this is where my family is and I'm not leaving. So, oh, right. so that, people that could making be like rational choices that have nothing to do with the economics. It's just, you know, family ties. Yeah. But, but there are, I mean, you know, a lot of people have had to go actively to California. Yeah. So my point is this. Do you think that they I rather move to Los Angeles of his own free will. Yeah, right. Well, a lot of people do, especially people who are raised in cooler climates. Right. And they he, really, he, he likes the weather, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So here's the point. Do you think that there is a correlation between the – and I don't know what's – is there a word to describe – all of the, the describe all of the tax you pay. So, for example, New Hampshire, there's no income tax, but the state's property taxes tend to be quite high. Right. The so state's going to get their money somehow. Yeah. Right. So, is there is there a word to to describe in sort of an umbrella way all of the taxes that are applied to a salary? You, uh, you, you use tax some burden, term. I guess, is generally uh, okay. how they refer to it. So, like, you know, basically based on your state income, uh, state sales tax, property taxes, uh, various other taxes, you can kind of refer to all of that as, like, the state's tax burden. Okay. And then uh, – now, what is the ta- – the, the tax burdens by state, they differ, right? As they, you they mentioned, yeah, California sure. is very high. I would imagine, like, Alabama is pretty low. Pretty low, for sure. Right. What is the reported quality of life in Alabama, for example? Not so great. Uh, maybe a little bit better if you don't have kids and you don't care about education, because I think uh, <laughs> Alabama is generally towards the bottom. In uh, well, you know that we've had we've Dane Perry does appear on the program monthly, yeah, occasionally, and he's a he's a he's a son, a native of uh, originally of Mississippi. Mm, not surprising. And he would say that, uh, you know, well, of course, frequently Alabama and Mississippi are duking yeah, it out. Right. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> and what he would call the top of the. The top of the education lists. <laughs> it depends uh, how you think about it. So yeah, is there I guess a correlation? you want to in- invert the list, maybe. Is there a correlation? This is a, a naive question that's taking forever to ask. Is there a correlation between reported quality of life and overall tax burden in places? Uh, good question. I would guess probably. Uh, it's probably more correlation than causation. It's not like people are like, oh – this place is really great. Let's raise the taxes on people who are going to come here. But I think uh, when you have large metropolitan areas like California or New York um, where there's significant demand, uh, cities can say, okay, we we have the ability to um, kind of tax people and they're not as responsive. Uh, like I guess they're not, they're not as uh, – prices aren't as sticky in terms of where people are going to decide, well, I want to move to New York City, but the tax rate is, you know – half a percentage point higher than New Jersey. I'm not moving to New York. I'll move to Jersey instead. Like the people who are going to move to New York or California are going to do it, and uh, the taxes are not going to be a major factor on their decisions. So therefore, the, those places can can apply higher taxes. Right. Okay. So, yeah, and that's a good point, right? So they know that they can impose more taxes because people see – because there does seem to be a higher demand to live in that area anyway. Yeah. Whereas if you live in a place that's less immediately appealing, you have to appeal to people. By right. not taxing them as much. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why what Delaware is like the corporate tax haven of the, <laughs> of the U.S. is no one wants to live in Delaware. Uh, so they instead of having residents, they appeal to all these corporations, and every credit card company in the world has set up a headquarters in Delaware for tax reasons. All right. Sorry, uh, Delaware. None of this is really relevant, but it, no, it we're was still a, not talking baseball. I, well, no, it was like vaguely. <laughs> we did say Bryce Harper's name like five minutes ago. Well, so tell me. Tell me, you wrote about Bryce Harper today. Where He's is amazing. He, of what, what percentage of of Mike Trout is he right now? Ninety nine. Ninety. Okay, so they're yeah. pretty similar. I mean, I, I think like 
I wouldn't be shocked if in a couple of months we just had to adjust it and be like, yeah, Bryce Harper is now better than Mike Trout. I don't think we're quite there where we can say it yet because Trout's track record is just longer. But I think there's a pretty good chance that right now Bryce Harper is a better player. And with a little bit more uh, time and a little bit more evidence, we're going to look back and be like, yeah, Harper passed Trout sometime in 2015. And and this and there's so much pressure on on uh, Trout's bat um, because he's not the at least I don't think he is the base runner. Yeah, he's attempted one stolen base so far. Right. Although I, my guess is that what the gap between the running has closed s- s- over the last like three or four years, right? Yeah, I think uh, Harper was worth three or four runs on the bases last year. He's actually like not a huge base dealer, but he's a pretty good base runner when he's uh, advancing first to third or second to home. Right. And uh, I believe uh, last year the gap in stolen bases was like 11 to 6 or something, and this year Harper's ahead 3 to 1. So, you know, in terms of like over the last year and change, I mean, they're almost equal in stolen bases. Harper's a pretty good base runner. Trout's certainly a better base runner. Mm-hmm. But the gap isn't, you know, a couple of wins like it was two years ago. Was that obvious like three years ago with Trout? I mean, I know that I mean, he has an improbable body type, right? Yeah, you mean he has a giant neck? Well, yeah, he does. Yeah. And, I mean, he's he's kind of looked like this since he was, what, 19 or 20? Um, uh, yeah, basically. He, he, I think he was probably born with a giant neck. Right. But he had just has – he's got like a very, th- a very thick yeah. up, upper body – and it For was sure. it's just rare to see someone with that body type also possess the, the sort of foot speed that he exhibited when he yep. was you know when he was uh, playing in if you know affiliated ball but not quite the majors yet or even and, his first year and i think he's gotten bigger too like when he got to the big leagues i don't think he was quite this big he has really transitioned from being kind of a fast guy with power to a power guy who's pretty fast for his size okay um so so they're so they're roughly the same now. A lot of a lot of pressure on Trout's bat. What is the difference between? And I would suggest to anyone besides your piece, um, August Fagerstrom wrote a piece about Domingo Santana today. He did, but it was impossible to discuss part of it without invoking Bryce Harper, which is essentially it, well both in terms of improvement, but but um, uh, Fagerstrom kind of created like a little toy stat, which is to take. The difference of you take the Z scores for for in zone swinging rate, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. the rate at which you swing pitches in the zone, and then um, out of the zone swinging rate. Yeah. Essentially, Santana, I think more than anyone so far this year, has the largest gap between those two. Yeah. Um, which is good. You want, you want to swing at strikes, but not swing at balls. Right. And Fagerstrom, he took the difference of the Z scores so that you have a, it's a more evil footing, more even footing. And, uh, uh, Santana's first and Harper's second. Yeah. And Harper's then, swinging at a lot of strikes. Right. And not swinging at balls. Now there are pitches, uh, it should be that there are pitches in the zone, right? That are not necessarily ideal pitches. Yeah. Ideal. Right. So it's not that your your in-zone swing rate should be close to 100. I mean, there are, there are in-zone pitches that you want to lay off, especially in like 3-0 counts if the guy paints a corner or something or, uh, you know, throws you a 3-1 slider back towards the outside corner. You don't want to swing at that pitch. You want to wait for something better. So I think uh, league average in-zone swing is in the 60s, maybe around 62%, something like that. Um, and the range is basically like 50 to 70. So you, like the really aggressive guys swing at like 70% of end zone pitches and the super passive guys swing at about half of them. Right. But, but if you have, but it, it does seem to suggest that if you have a large gap between your end zone and your out of zone swinging percentage that you are, you are making good choices Correct. about yeah. your swing. Yes. If you're going to swing, swing at strikes. And so this, this is, I mean, in addition to his physical tools, which are obvious even to idiots like myself. Yeah. That, what's that? 
I was agreeing with that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Then there's also, in addition to that, there's also like these very obvious baseball skills that he is continuing to develop. Right. He's getting better. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. Is it at the same rate? I mean, and, and I'm sure there's, there's obviously some interaction, right, between those physical skills and in the plate discipline because pitchers are less likely to challenge him. For sure. And I think like, uh, this is maybe one of the things that is like the most difficult to see ahead of time. So like Byron Buxton, I think, you know, one of the most hailed prospects of the last couple of years, uh, a consensus, you know, upside guy who, if he figures out, figures out how to put all his tools together, people, I mean, like when he was at A ball, he was getting compared to Mike Trout, which was ridiculous, but that was the kind of hype he was generating. And I think if you look at Buxton's, uh, what he's swinging at, like 35% of out of zone pitches and only like 55% of in zones. Uh, so he's basically swinging at balls and taking strikes, which is one of the reasons why right now Byron Buxton stinks. Yeah, it should, yeah, I mean, only about 30 plate appearances, but he, he's, well, yeah, I mean, he was terrible last year too. So like his first 200 plate appearances in the big leagues, he's been a total disaster in part because I think his approach is just needs, needs some fixing. And he's just swinging at the wrong pitches and, and taking the wrong pitches. And, um, you can have all the tools in the world, but if you're making bad decisions on when to sling, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but I'll ask you about a little bit more about Harper in a second, but just this is interesting with regard to Buxton, right? Because, because it, 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 it Leads me to wonder about that that move from even AAA to the majors, right? Yeah. And how for some guys it does not seem to be formidable, and for others it seems to be a real problem. Yeah. Um, because even even if you look besides the physical tools, Buxton's uh, plate discipline numbers in the minors were not particularly right. bad. Yeah, they were fine. Yeah, they were fine. And yet he's, I mean, he's struck out in over a third of his plate appearances now. Right. Um, as a, as a major leaguer. It's not, again, it's not that many, but it also, that figure doesn't really resemble at all the, the numbers he put up all through the minor leagues, even playing as, you know, I and mean, he's frequently two to three years younger than his competition. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I, I think back to the Neil Huntington's conversation about Gregory Polanco a couple of years ago is Polanco, maybe not quite on Buxton's level, but a very toolsy athletic guy who was young for his level and was performing well in AAA when the Pirates had a hole in the outfield and they kept him down and Huntington kept saying, Hey, look, you know, uh, we're, we don't think that just hitting well in AAA is how you get called up to the big leagues. We think there's like necessary adjustments that need to be made. And I think, um, you know, most of us thought that they were just doing it for service time reasons and they were just trying to buy an extra year free agency, which was probably a factor, or almost certainly a factor, especially for a team like Pittsburgh. Um, but then Bucks, or Polanco got to the big leagues and didn't, didn't perform that well right away. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of a shine kind of came off of him and they were like, oh yeah, this guy maybe still had some stuff to work on. Maybe they weren't kidding that just because he was hitting well in AAA didn't mean that he had nothing left to learn. And I think when you look at like the Cardinals, for instance, who seem to every year turn out some 26-year-old minor league veteran who can step into the lineup and hit right away, it seems to be that they spend a, an inordinate amount of time relative to the rest of the major leagues um, developing their players in the minors. And they certainly do not rush uh, kids to the big leagues, maybe since, I don't know, Rick Ann Keel was maybe the last one, and that didn't work out very well for them. Uh, it seems to be like, you know, Stephen Piscotty, I think, is 24 and is just now breaking in. Uh, you know, Tommy Pham is 27 is breaking in. Now they call up what, uh, Jeremy Hazelbaker, who comes out of nowhere and looks like he might actually turn into a big league player. Um, they, the Cardinals, I think, have kind of shown teams that it's not so bad to leave guys in the minor leagues for a while, even if they're performing well, because there really might be something to just repetition and seeing pitches and developing your approach and getting to the big leagues when you're ready rather than, 
okay, I barely mastered this level, and now I'm going to go get challenged, uh, you know, by a quality of pitching that I'm not used to. What are the what do we know, and what do we what do we suppose are the advantages and disadvantages of aggressively promoting a player? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I think people in baseball have very different uh, philosophies. So I've heard some GMs and player development guys say that they really don't ever want a guy to get bored. And so as soon as he gets to a level where he's not challenged anymore, they want to move him. Um, historically, I think that that is probably okay with the kind of the Mike Trouts and the Bryce Harpers of the world. Like there are guys who just don't necessarily need a lot of time because they're physically gifted and they're capable of making a transition. But I, I'm of the opinion without a lot of uh, studies to back this up. I can't like empirically prove this, but at least in my observation over the last, I don't know, 10 years of being a baseball writer, it seems to me that teams that rush prospects are doing them a disservice. And uh, it's a little bit too much of a, uh, abandoning your responsibility and just being like, we're just going to like throw them in the water, see if they sink or swim. If they flop, they were going to flop anyway, and it's not our responsibility. They're just a bust versus taking the time and saying, look, we're really going to work with you and try and iron out your flaws. It seems to me like the organizations that are the best served at player development do not take the um, immediately rush guys to the big leagues approach, and I think that – can kind of be the lazy way out. It's just like, we're just going to make you prove whether you can do this on your own and use promotions as essentially a weeding out process rather than trying to maximize every individual player's chances of making it. Right. Well, and and of course there are two, uh, there are at least two considerations going on simultaneously, right? One of, one of which is uh, looking at the player's development itself and to, you know, to what degree he's, he is fulfilling his potential. And then there's also the question of his career earnings, right? Sure. Yeah. Because you're not if you if you promote a guy to the majors young, you at least do not appear to be doing him a disservice where his his uh where his salary is concerned. Yeah, I mean certainly an issue for small market teams, especially where they if you promote a guy who's 21 or 22 and isn't big league ready, you're essentially trading like a 28 29 peak season um for a 21 22 you know, learning season. And so you say, okay, look, you know, am I getting more value out of this guy when he's trying to figure out how to hit big league pitching? Or am I going to get more value, at, you know, when he's in the middle of his career and really mashing? And so uh, it can certainly make economic sense to, you know, slow a guy's development down a little bit and get him to the big leagues a little bit later and not get him, uh, not spend, you know, one sixth of his service time, at least that you have control over, uh, while he's kind of learning how to hit a curveball. Right. And, but then, then it should also be noted that, uh, if you do let a player develop, um, you know, to the maximum degree, uh, then it's possible that he could prolong his career um, by, you know, by, you know, by virtue of strong performances. Which, even if he gets to free agency on the later side, he will have, uh, he will have a more attractive resume at that point. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously pros and cons to both. Like, you know, you have a, a you know a speculative value six years down the line, and in a lot of cases, the GM's not even going to be there in six years. So you're like, ah, do I want to preserve value for the guy who's going to take my job, or do I want to maximize my chances of winning now? And I think, especially if you're a competitive team who's trying to, you know, make the playoffs this season, um, you know, getting the marginal extra win or two could be worth, you know, three or four or five wins in six years when you kind of look at the the, the time value of money and saying, look, we can generate more revenue. If we make it to the postseason, um, so I don't think you, a team should look at it and be like, "Well, this guy is definitely going to be a better player in seven years, so let's delay his development." But I do wonder if teams who have gotten into the kind of the Russia prospect mode uh, have 
ended up worse off than if they would have taken a slower path to big leagues. I know that wasn't there an, an era in the Seattle Mariners when they were promoting guys just um, as you know as quickly as possible, essentially. Yeah. That was basically uh, the Bill Bavese regime, as he believed uh, that there was no real reason to leave a guy uh, at a level for him to dominate. He was he was of the move guys very quickly idea, and uh, and I don't think the Mariners player development has uh, justified that philosophy. Right. Well, the, the one problem is right if you if you promote a guy prematurely and he fails. Yeah, and then you needed to develop further. Sending yeah. him back to AAA seems it seems like an insult at that point, right? Yeah, and I think like there's probably uh, some real issues with guys who have spent significant time in the big leagues not wanting to go back to ride buses. Like once they get the taste of you know flying on private jets and like eating real food and getting real money, they're not going to want to go back to making twenty thousand dollars a year, forty thousand dollars a year riding on buses and going to Fresno. Um, so I think you have motivational issues. I mean, I think. Once you get a guy to the big leagues, it really behooves you, if you can, to not have to send him back down unless it's an injury rehab. And I think teams have done the kind of the shuffle of like, let's call this guy up and then figure out three weeks later that he's not ready and send him back and then call him up a few months later. But to me, that generally has not proven uh, effective. Do you think that's the problem with Buxton? I mean, do you really think Buxton was promoted prematurely? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you look at like uh, the numbers that got people excited about him. Uh, so what, like, like 40 at bats in AAA last year, he hit 350 or something, but it was like a 500 Babbitt, right? Like, at no point along his development path has he shown, like, really good power and above average strikeout rates and kind of the core skills that would lead you to say, okay, this guy's really ready to play in the big leagues. It's been, um, very heavily speed and, and hits falling in or, you know, bad defense driven, um, where you say, okay, against big league players and big league fielders on big league fields, uh, maybe some of these singles or doubles or triples aren't hits and, and they get caught by other players. And, um, so I think, from my perspective, at least, the hype on Buxton has always a little bit been ahead of the performance, and it probably wouldn't have been a terrible idea for the Twins to slow him down, now, especially with all the injuries. I happen to have another player's uh, uh, profile, Fangraph's profile, open, and that's a Ledmus Diaz, yeah, who was one who performed um, by by a number of different measures, performed quite well last year as a minor leaguer, both at Double A and in Triple A, um, not just the slash stats, but also some of the indicators underneath. And he has had a, uh, a fabulous beginning to his career uh, with, the, with the Cardinals. Um, not just, again, according to Slash, but he's only, I think he's struck out just like a couple times, essentially. Right. Um, he's hit a couple home runs. It's, when, you, when you have a strong, when you have a one-to-one home run to strikeout ratio. That's not bad. It's not bad. Unless you're a zero with both. But I then you have that, zero strikeouts. Then you have zero strikeouts. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Diaz, what, he was 23 and the Cardinals left him in double A for the entire year last year, even though, he, I mean, almost the entire year, I guess he got triple A at some point, but like most of the year he spent in double A. He's actually 24 even. It was 24 last year? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. there you go. So like, so this is a kind of an example of the Cardinals being very conservative, um, with a guy and saying, look, we probably could have moved him, but we think it's better for his development to be slow and, and now Diaz is in the big leagues as a 25-year-old rookie and kind of maybe, like, he's not going to become Matt Carpenter probably, but there's, you know, Alan Craig. Like, the Cardinals have a long history of getting these older guys to the big leagues and having them become significantly better than we expect. Yes, do you know one whose name uh, crept to the top of uh, some searches last week was, I, you've, you've definitely never heard of him. I I hadn't heard of him, and I, and I you know, spend quite a bit of time looking for this sort of thing, is uh, Bruce Caldwell. 
Uh, yeah. He is a he is a second and third baseman in the Cardinal system. He was in the fringe five. He was, yeah. yeah. And uh, in the same game that was it, Alex Bregman hit two home runs. So did Bruce Caldwell. Yeah. Off of one of them, which was off Lance McCullers, who's a real major league pitcher. And uh, I have to say, with a name like Bruce, he really better be a, a slugging, uh, athletically challenged player. Because I would be really sad if like Bruce was like this like spry, slap it around athlete. You just think that doesn't sound no. Bruce is like a you know a bouncer or you know or like a like a like a Scottish warrior. Yeah, right. Like yeah. I'm Bruce and I take steroids. I mean that's kind of what I. Think. I don't think he doesn't need to take steroids. Well, his name's Bruce, so he should try. Well, I don't think that that's necessary. I'm sure Bruce Caldwell's succeeding on his own merits. Of course he is. Yeah. Maybe he should change his name then. It, there are Bruce, not a Bruce lot of. Sounds like someone I would make take more p tests. There are there there are not a lot of current major leaguers named Bruce. Yeah. First I mean, what, Bruce. like Bruce Rondone, and he throws like 106 with no idea where it's going? Mm. He's living up to his name. You think, okay. This yeah. is, this is, these are the, yes, these are Bruce's. Yeah, this is what a Bruce looks like, I think. Yeah, all right. Well, I don't think he's gonna, he probably won't be changing it, uh, how he plays, but it is interesting. Again, when, when, when I saw that it was a, it was a Cardinal who was doing these ridiculous things, it made it less surprising, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think, what, Jeremy Hazelbaker is, like, another, like, who had ever heard of this guy until two weeks ago, and now he's hitting, like, 600. Right. But some of it, I mean, it, uh, right. it's fair to say it's not sustainable. In, uh, oh, sure. But, I mean, like, this was, like, Tommy Pham's backup, which Tommy Pham is another one of these guys that's, like, who is this? And then he starts sitting bombs in the playoffs. Like, the, the Cardinals have this never-ending pipeline of guys no one's ever heard of who are good. Right. Or yeah. who will turn out to be good. Right. Anyway, did we answer the question of whether it's drafting or development? I think it's development. Okay. Personally, I don't. I don't think we can know for sure, but I think it's they're turning, um, you know, less. Uh, they're turning uh, lemons into lemonade. Yeah, that's what you do with lemons, right? Unless yeah. you use them for zest purposes. I mean, I, yeah, I often use lemons, and I don't ever make lemonade. So. I mean, but you're still using them well. Hopefully, I do like lemon flavor. I think once you like just throw seven pounds of sugar in it, it gets worse. Right. That's true. I would. Uh... I like sour things. When when the wife and I were in Oregon last week, we went to some restaurant that had like a happy hour menu, and it said at the bottom like you have to order drinks in order to order the happy hour bar food. Uh-huh. And I don't I don't drink alcohol, so yeah. I asked the guy. I was like, hey, can I get some kind of like non-alcoholic thing? And he's like, oh man, we have a thing for you. It's like this lime grapefruit thing, and it was like the sourest drink I've ever had, and it was awesome. Like my lips were puckering. It was so good. I was a big fan of sour drinks. All right, yeah, yeah. It's a good taste. Yeah. All right. Uh, wait, let me ask you. You wrote a you wrote a um, um, piece a piece last week about Dallas Keuchel. I did. Uh, the warning signs related to Dallas Keuchel, and then he went out and he what he pitched like a complete game. Uh, no, I think he only won eight innings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he really, str- really struggled with those eight shutout innings. All right. Yeah. And so now, did 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 Dallas Keuchel go out? And um, essentially refute all the points you made, or or did something change fundamentally underneath, or what happened? No, so I think like so obviously uh, I would have preferred maybe that I didn't publish the piece of Dallas Keuchel's like a little bit concerning on the day through eight shutout innings, but I think like his velocity was still down relative to what it was last year. It's April, so like guys do throw slower and then and add velocity. So I don't, I'm not trying to like sound a warning bell that like Dallas Keuchel's arm is going to fall off, but I think. We are seeing him pitch at reduced velocities compared to what he's pitched at in the past, even in past Aprils. And I think he only struck out four guys on Friday night. 
um, which is okay. I mean, you don't, when you don't walk anybody and get a lot of ground balls, you don't need a billion strikeouts, but uh, four strikeouts in eight innings isn't exactly the kind of start that's like, I'm, my dominant self is back, right? So like, uh, I think that there are still some underlying reasons for the Astros to be a little bit worried about their ace, not necessarily thinking that he's going to be useless this year, but I think the Astros really need him to be a frontline starting pitcher, uh, you know, an all-star quality Cy Young contender. And if he's throwing 88 instead of 90, and he's getting, you know, four strikeouts a game instead of six strikeouts a game, I think that there could be uh, some remaining cause for concern. Was there research, uh, I feel like I saw this, Rob Arthur might have produced it, I don't know though, regarding a certain velocity threshold below which it's difficult, regardless of a pitcher's other skills, it's difficult for him to get batters out. Yeah, I think uh, it sounds like it was a Rob Arthur piece. I also am not sure. But I think it was a 87, right? It was a, at least what sticks in my mind is like if you throw less than 87, yeah. the rest of your stuff doesn't really matter that much. It's just you're, you're done, basically. You're not done. But like, you know, Jared Weaver, I think, is like the best or Bronson Arroyo. Or these are the, the, the best thing you can be, Mark Burley, kind of end of career Mark Burley. Right. This is like the absolute best case scenario. If you have like pinpoint command and good secondary stuff – and you change speeds and you know how to pitch, you can be a back end starter throwing eighty five. Okay. All right. So that so that's the idea. Is like if it's like if you throw like you could be well, I guess well, I mean Adam Wainwright just frequently sits at ninety, if yeah. that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um uh, other pitchers have had very strong seasons working in that range. Yeah. But it but if you're working at eighty seven or lower your margin for error is just really, really low. Right, and that, but that's a—is that not a concern for Dallas Keuchel, perhaps? No, I think I think it is. And mm-hmm. I, in the post, I pointed out, like when he got to the big leagues, he was terrible throwing at this velocity, right? And like part of the reason he got good the last couple of years was he started throwing harder. So it wasn't like he turned into a fireballer, but he went from 87 to 90 or 88 to 91 or whatever it was. Right. Um, he got like a pretty significant velocity spike. And if he's going to go back to pitching 87, 88. Well, we've seen Dallas Keuchel at 87-88. It wasn't very good. Now, he's a better pitcher now than he was then. But I think that, you know, even for non-hard throwers, velocity matters. Okay. All right. Well, I think you've uh, fulfilled your obligation here. Cool. All right. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.